Hi there, and thank you for joining us for the Elevation podcast series presented by the Colorado PGA. We're kicking off season two by exploring the topic of merchandising. My name is Holly Champion, and I'm the education director for the Colorado PGA. We're joined by three guests for this episode, each having won the National Merchandiser of the Year Award for the PGA of America in each of its three categories. Prepare to learn our guests' take on aspects of merchandising such as logos, seasons and holidays, retail space, and more. Our first guest is Mark Finkston, PGA professional and head golf professional at the Golf Club at Bear Dance in Larkspur. Mark is our most recent award winner, having been awarded the National Public Merchandiser of the Year in 2017. Mark has drawn from his experience in military and daily fee operations in order to create a unique experience at Bear Dance. From seeing the bare bones operations where he grew up, to now priding himself on being able to serve both his local community and golfers who travel to his property, Mark has a great perspective on variety within merchandising. Our second guest is George Carhoff, PGA professional and director of golf at the club at Ravenna in Littleton. George was the National Private Merchandiser of the Year award winner in 2012. Having spent time at high-end properties such as Cherry Hills, Sun and Alp, and the Country Club at Castle Pines, George takes a service approach to his merchandising. Focusing on the needs and desires of his membership has been the core of his merchandising philosophy and has helped shape his merchandising strategy. Our third and final guest is Russ Miller, PGA Director of Golf at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. Russ won the Resort Merchandiser of the Year in 2003. Russ focuses on both his private membership as well as resort guests. The importance of his logo within his operations is significant, along with using the challenging seasonality to his advantage. Through careful planning and selection, Russ is able to create a unique buying experience for his very diverse clientele. Without spoiling too much of the conversation, please enjoy this episode of the Elevation Podcast. George, Mark, thank you for joining us for the Elevation podcast series focusing on merchandising. I really appreciate your time being able to join us here today. And George, we'll start off with you. Just tell me a little bit about yourself and about your background and what you think of merchandising. So I grew up in a small town in Nebraska, played college golf at a small school in Nebraska and uh, took on my first assistance job in Colorado Springs at the uh, Country Club of Colorado working for Bill Major and that was my first opportunity in the golf business and um, from there worked there for nine years and I went to work for uh, Clayton Cole at Cherry Hills Country Club. Uh, that's where I learned about 85% of all my merchandising was from from Clayton and uh, Clayton introduced us to uh, RMSA and a gentleman named Rick, Richie Sainer um, and then and the whole number side of uh, merchandising and how uh, to be profitable and uh, luckily from there I went on to the Sun Up Golf Club in Vail uh, for five years as the head professional then the director of golf there and then uh, went to the Country Club of Castle Pines for seven years and uh, hopefully this is my last go around here at the club at Ravenna and uh, I just feel like merchandising is a key key part of uh, of a golf operation I feel like the biggest part of merchandising is uh uh, club fitting and teaching and, and getting people interested in golf and, and their equipment's a very, very vital piece of, uh, of what we do here at the club. 
That's great. Thank you. Um, Russ, kind of same questions. Sure. Um, born and raised in a small town outside of Pinehurst, North Carolina. Um, went to Fair State University and played golf there. And at the time, it was the only PGM school in the country. So that, that's how old I am. Um, but went there, graduated, got married a week later, moved to Florida for my first uh, assistant professional position. Was there for two years to Texas for a couple of years, back to North Carolina. And then I was at Landfall Club on the coast of North Carolina. It was a real high-end uh, private club for nine years. And now I've been uh, director of golf at the Broadmoor for 23 years. So been very fortunate to be at some really nice places. And I'll echo what George said, but ours is a little bit different here where um, the hard good sales are a big part of where he is. Uh, at a resort, hard good sales other than golf balls and gloves is, is a very difficult part of it. Uh, we really depend on soft goods much more than anything and logos, and we'll talk a lot about that. But um, most people that come to resort certainly want a logo and want a golf shirt or a sweater or a jacket. And so that's kind of where we do our bread and butter. Um, very seasonal, which we'll talk about also, but um, that's what's fun. It's so seasonal here. You know, you go from like last week, 80 degrees to we had three inches of snow last night and then 70 degrees in four more days from now. So it's a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. So that's how I look at my merchandise and philosophy. Um, Mark, tell me a little bit about yourself and some of, something interesting about merchandising from your perspective. You know, it's neat listening to these two guys who um, have, you know, been around the block and, and the smartest um, merchandisers we have in our section. So um, I, as Russ said, I'm, I think I'm a blend of these two guys. Um, these are, this is my 20th season at the golf club at Bear Dance. Um, but I grew up in South Texas playing military golf. Um, grew up in an Air Force family. And so I grew up playing at the bare essential of grassroots level. Um, not so fortunate to be stationed at a place like the Air Force Academy and get to play a beautiful place or even like Fort Carson. We were at some of the most barest bones places there was in nine holes. And I think right then and there, I knew that I was going to be a PGA professional um, and I was going to run military golf because I felt like the overall appearance and the service that um, our men and women were getting was, was so um, subservient and inadequate. And went to Rice University and played golf there. Um, and then when I got out, I started, I became a PGA member and started running Air Force golf courses for 12 years. And um, my merchandising at, at an early age, I always tell, I always I say the story that when we walked in the front door of a property, I could tell you what kind of day I was going to have. Just the overall appearance of how that professional set up his store or his retail center, or his golf shop, or just the, you know, the first impact I knew if it was going to be average, uh, below average, which I grew up in. So I knew what below average was all the time. And then, you know, you get blown away. Um, so um, that's how I, I took merchandising was is a golf shop needs to be pretty right off the bat. Um, and whereas George talked about hard goods and sales, um, you know, we do both. Um, 
we're we are at a daily fee property, um, and we see thirty five thousand different people a year. So we're uh, but we have a lot of locals. So we're using the resort side into logoing, into uh, merchandising, and changing flavors and seasonality, as well as um, people need golf clubs and equipment to play golf. So we're able to to kind of capitalize on both of those. But our merchandising is definitely focused um, toward the the soft goods end. It's fascinating. There is kind of an array between all three kinds of facilities. I know from from each perspective. George, to kind of build on the logo piece from being at private clubs and things like that, you know, do you find that you sell quite a bit of logoed stuff to your members, to guests? I mean, how does that look from your perspective? Oh, 100% of what our, what we sell is logoed men's-wise. Um, ladies is about 50-50. Um, it's interesting how ladies don't really like the logo as much, so that's it's always interesting and changing. Um, I think the biggest thing for me going forward is you always, I always have to look at, you know, who, who are the members coming in, who are the members leaving, resigning the club or moving out of town, and, and, and so you always got different buying um, – uh, preferences from new members as opposed to your old members. So you, so you got always got to be on the fly and, and uh, understand who your new customer is and, and what their wants and needs are. And I know from the perspective of logos, that's at the couple of places that I was working with green grass, some of them really value it and say, there's absolutely not a single shirt in the place that doesn't have a logo. And there's some of them that are kind of like you, George, that some of it, you know, depends on gender, depends on the item, outerwear versus just regular shirts and, and things like that. But um, Russ, what about you at the Broadmoor? I know I've been to the Broadmoor. I had the pleasure of staying there for a few nights after we got married. And um, I was really excited to walk into the shop and get something with the Broadmoor logo. But um, do you do you do anything that's not necessarily logoed soft good wise? Yeah, actually, that's a great question, Holly. We actually were talking last week, the staff and I, and what we found on very high-end pieces, cashmere, um, like George said, expensive women's pieces, we may still do a logo, but it may be tone-on-tone, tone, and it may not be on the chest. It may be on the back yoke. So you still have the logo, but it's not real visible. Um, we're hearing on those high-end expensive pieces that they're going to wear those to places out that they don't really want to show off a logo. But that's a really small percentage of our overall program. Uh, 99% of everything else is logoed. Uh, and like George said, too, a little bit of the ladies is not, but most of it is. Um, and every single guest, we, we do have a private membership as well. So we do cater to them some, too. But um, every guest that comes in here wants to have that Broadmoor logo as they want to have Pebble Beach and Pinehurst and wherever they go, um, and to Mark and George's clubs as well. So even glasses, um, even sunglasses, you can put them on the sides. I mean, it's 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 a logo store, basically, and uh, we've just felt that that's what our customer wants most. Yeah, I didn't even know that you could logo sunglasses. So that's something I you learned can. today. You can on the side. Yeah, I don't know what that piece is called, but it's on the, it's on the, not the glass front where you couldn't see out, but it's on the side of it. You sure can. Interesting. All right. Well, kind of looking at um, why I asked the three of you to partake in doing this podcast with us is we have somebody who's won a national award for private 
someone who's won a national award for resort and someone who's won a national award for a public daily fee. And so there's obviously a huge difference between each environment and each customer and clientele base that you sell to. I'm curious to see what your insights are and maybe some specific challenges or you know, fun sides of each one of those kinds of facilities. So Mark, maybe elaborate a little bit on some of your daily fee experience and what's specific to that kind of environment. You know, I, I, I still think, and I, I, I would love, you know, George's and Russ's input on this, but when I grew up as a young professional trying to make my underperforming, ugly looking golf operation as pretty as I could, um, I was a one man show. I, I didn't have two or three assistants and I didn't have a buyer and I didn't have a merchandiser. It was just, you know, the, you know, the head bottle washer. And um, the one thing I would challenge every golf professional, you know, every golf professional wants to teach and they want to play. And when I interview them, I go, tell me about, what do you think about clothes and merchandising? And, and they're all looking at me with this glare and they're just like, oh no, this guy's a sweater stacker. I can tell from the beginning. And, but I can tell you, I've learned more about numbers and the business and how to run a business. And as I was, a, as I was a, an individual one man PGA member, I just wanted to make money. I wanted to show my ownership that I could run a profitable organization. And I can tell you that, um, I just learned about cost of goods and what the impact of of high inventory levels and shrinkage and low inventory levels. And you never would have known any of that. So I feel like my balance sheet knowledge and my overall club skills came just from buying clothes. Because once you buy too much clothes, your accountant's going to call you in and go, hey, what the heck is going on here? And then you don't have enough clothes and you're learning to turn it. So I just think that starting with just the business aspect of uh, putting together an open to buy and knowing how much clothes you're selling or merch. I just call it merch. We could just be golf balls. To me, they're all widgets. You know, I'm carrying as many sunglasses, as many gaiters, as many towels, as many uh, barbecue aprons, anything I can put my logo on that I can sell as a profit that somebody doesn't have at their place. I want I want to be George and Russ to the punch of having something new. I don't want to be the follower. I just try to find something that I think is new and exciting. When you walk in my door again, that's, that's my moment of truth. Um, so that's where I have learned um, – about the business and I would challenge anybody that uh, if you want to be a smarter mathematician and you want to be able to run your club and go to your owner and say, hey, I just uh, I took our golf shop sales from 200 to 300 and we operated at a 63% cost of goods. So we have 37% merch uh, profit margin, which grew our business by X. If some kid came to me that way, I'm like, I'm, I'm keeping that guy around forever. That's a great perspective. And it, it definitely does teach you how to get really good at math really quick and really good at using Excel. Um, Russ, what do you think are maybe some of the specific challenges to, I know your facility is pretty unique with it being such a highly rated resort, but you do have that private membership. And thank you for reminding me of that. What do you think some of your specific challenges are? Yeah, well, I'll kind of go back like Mark did. I, I, I was very lucky. I got my first head professional job at age 25 at a really small private club in North Carolina, and I owned, the own, owned my own shop. And my wife and I were so poor, um, I rode a bicycle to work. She had a car that was a dump. 
Um, we didn't have anything. And that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Uh, I didn't even have enough credit to take out a loan to put merchandise in the shop. So what I did first, I paid cash for balls and gloves and saved some money and then got a few shirts, saved some money and kept building up the inventory to where at the end I had about a $50,000 inventory in this really small shop. And when you have to write checks every month and hope you sold enough to cover your invoices that are due, um, as Mark said, it teaches you to be very frugal and and to pay attention, to pay attention to what's going on because, like I said, I didn't have extra cash. I didn't have a loan. I didn't have any credit whatsoever. So what we try to do today, now many, many years later, is run our golf shop the same way, very frugally. You know, I don't own it now, but if I did, how would I run it? And I wouldn't over inventory it, but I would, like Mark said, we don't under inventory it. Um, I say, Holly, one of our biggest challenges here is how seasonal we are. Um, you know, we go from snow today to 75 degrees in a week or two, and then it's perfect weather till early November. Then it gets really cold again and, and the guests go away. So really we've got, we've got about six, seven months to get 85% of our yearly goal. And uh, we have to be smart when we bring merchandise in, how much we bring in, what we bring in. You know, another challenge is, and it's like for both these guys, cause they have seasonal people there. Um, most of our clientele is not from here. Uh, most of our clientele in the summer comes from Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas and Florida and Arizona, very warm climates. So they're one, they're coming to Colorado to get away from the, the heat, but two, even the type of materials they like say in Texas versus what we sell in Colorado are, are totally different. And this year, you know, we study it. Like Mark said, you try to get ahead of the game. 100% cotton is really coming back in the South. And that really went away for a long time because you, you know, you dry it one time and the extra large goes to a medium. But those things are coming back. So it's, it's a challenge having a really diverse clientele here, but it's also fun because we can showcase things here that they're not going to carry in their shops down in Texas. Um, we sell jackets 12 months out of the year, and, and then I keep using Texas because that's a big part of our clientele. Uh, they may sell jackets the month of December only. So it's a challenge, but yet it makes it fun. And, and, and just like I said, going back when I was 25 years old, that's the greatest thing ever happened to me because I was scared to death of what could happen. And thankfully it worked out good, but uh, a great life lesson learned. And, and I appreciate that to our guys and girls today. That's an interesting point that you bring up, Russ, with off seasons and having the seasonality of, of a sport. I know we're fortunate here in Colorado to be able to play golf pretty much 12 months out of the year, depending on the day and course conditions. But George, kind of round us out. What are some of your specific challenges for merchandising? I know you've been at some pretty high-end private clubs. So talk to us a little bit about your private facilities. Well, first of all, I didn't win the award. It was Holly and Kelly, Kelly Mizoraka and Sean Mack and Brian Nishi and uh, Jason Glass that uh, won that uh, award. So I just, I just gave them a little direction, and they went and, and they took it. Uh, they took the football down the field and, and scored the touchdown and won the championship. So um, 
that's all that's all on them. So I appreciate all their work and what they did, and and I got all the recognition, but I didn't deserve it. So anyway, that's my two cents on that. But uh, I think the biggest challenge, you know, is Russ says, is I'm a pretty frugal person. I live within my means, and I try to run the merchandising in the shop within the same philosophies of the club. And when you have a club and you have a membership, they expect you to have everything, and they, you know. Um, and you got to make decisions in your shop um, as far as what uh, vendors you're going to bring in. And you can't bring them all in. And even though some members want it and they think, well, I'm a member here and I should have this, um, that's your biggest challenge. And um, and it's, it's awesome. You know, I think Mark said it you and Russ said it too. You got to kind of get out in front of it and try new things. But sometimes when you try new things, uh, part of your philosophy is going to be how, to, how am I going to get out of it, right? Like it's not selling. You know, if you bring in product X and you brought in 40 pieces and you look on, look up there one day and uh, a couple weeks in and there's only been four or five pieces sold, how are you going to get out? What's your philosophy? How you, what's your strategy? You know, and I always try to look ahead and say, okay, this is not going well. So what do we need to do? Do we need to put it, you know, in a more displayable uh, spot in the shop so more people see it so it's more visual so they maybe they'll see it notice it um, you got your hot spots and your cold spots in your shop and you got to move things around so that uh, it always looks new and fresh and if that goes to your hot uh, hot corner that always sells and it's still not selling like how am I going to get out of it and, um, what's coming up on, on the calendar what outside event uh, how, you know, what sales plan are you going to have to get out of that product? So I think that's the fun thing about merchandising is you got, you know, it's fun to try all these different things and to bring things in. And then, and then uh, if it doesn't work, you say, how do I get out of it? How can I, because uh, the key thing for me is, is if you always putting stuff on sale, then the members are going to say, okay, I'll just wait for it to go on sale. So how can you put things on sale during group outings or Monday outings or different things to where your membership doesn't get used to seeing uh, sales to where they'll just say, hey, I'll wait for it. So um, I think it's fun. I think it's fun to to make your shop look beautiful, a beautiful showroom. So they come in. Uh, I think it's important that when they walk in, they feel relaxed. If it's uh, cluttery and and busy and uh, crap everywhere, then it, it kind of creates a sense of uh, stress right away. So that's I think that's the most important thing is for the when they walk in it feels feels calm and relaxing and i think that's very important for me all great points russ i think it was you that brought up the seasonality and mark you as well um how do each of you in your own environments handle the seasons and maybe particularly the holidays mark i guess we can start with you you know um i think um seasonality is is a huge um it takes a little while to learning learning curve so you know how much inventory to have and uh pre-2020 um our our philosophy was um to carry as little as i possibly can going into december because that means when i go to january to buy my open i have more assets to buy more product so ours was a huge bell curve you know we started um you know, in the 40s or 50,000, and we would excel up to where we, where our turn rate was. And then the goal was to be as full as we can in August and as light as we can at Thanksgiving. Um, we were lucky enough to build a new retail store um, in, we moved in in July of 2020, and this is my first spring in the new store, um, new golf shop. 
And it's still going to be exactly the same way, Holly, just because whereas Russ, who lives in a hotel, and George, who has a private club, are I have zero traffic once the property closes, other than our local community that supports us. You know, um, so we now that we have a, a year-round retail store, we'll still carry that. We'll still have some nice offerings, but. It was more important to me because at the year end, most places, and I, whenever I go to these guys' shops, I always look to see what sort of sale they're running, what program they're running, because the goal is not to give it away. The goal is to still try to make some money. So at the very end of the year, we were liquidating as quickly as we could. So I like to see how people are doing different sales of... You spend $300, you get X. You spend Y, you know, you do this sort of action, you get a different program. But um, so now that in our new place, it's a long, long-winded answer, Holly, we're still going to carry some nice small collections. But in, the, in December, it's tight because uh, I don't, because if I bring in 10000 and 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 only sell por- a portion of it in January and February when I'm trying to buy spring and new fresh, it's tied up. So people need to realize, you know, Old inventory never goes away, and if you don't liquidate it quickly, um, it learns to add up. So, but that's what we do about the seasonality part. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Um, George, we'll kind of go to you next. I'm curious what your philosophy is on seasonal and holidays. Well, I mean, it depends on the club and where you're at. I mean, here at here at Ravenna, uh, one thing I'm fortunate, I get a like I don't make the members use their credit book at the end of the year so they can carry it over to the next year. So that, that helps, I think our business and as far as cash flow during December and January, um, when we're not getting a lot of cash in here, so we don't have to uh, do a bunch of special orders and all of a sudden that's more money out of accounting. Um, I, I know my numbers. I know the numbers of what sells every year and uh, during those months. And so I just plan on that. Now, we're building a new clubhouse. The club, the shop's going to be twice the size as it is now. So I'm going to have to change that philosophy and, and be more of a year round um, club because when I got here, there was 27 occupied homes. Uh, right now there's 125 occupied homes and I have 42 homes under construction right now. So I'm going to be close to 200 homes uh, by this time next year when we're in this clubhouse and uh, it's going to be exciting and it's going to be, it's going to be awesome to have uh, more of a year round client and customers and I'm gonna have to change my whole buying philosophy based on the occupancy here in the community and I'm curious is everyone that lives in your community a member uh, there's only like 15 that are not either a golf or social member. So I, I don't know why you'd want to live in our community and not be a golf member. Uh, it's such a wonderful thing. You get in the community, you get behind the gates and you buy a golf cart. Your golf cart becomes your primary mode of transportation. You take it to the club for dinner. You take it to your neighbor's house for a glass of wine. You take it to the, to the gym to work out. You go uh, just cruising around at night. And it, it's, it's such a wonderful lifestyle once you get in here. And uh, I think that'll create more traffic with a clubhouse. I think more people will come over for happy hour and, uh, and then they'll stop by the shop to see what's going on. So I think there's a great opportunity there. And uh, I, I see our sales really growing in the next couple of years is our membership fills from 278 to 395 full golf members. And as our community goes from, like I said, 27 homes to 230 homes, it's going to be a different, different, different atmosphere here at the club. That does sound like a really great environment. Maybe I want to t- retire in Ravenna. <laughs> <laughs> um, Russ, what are your thoughts on uh, seasons and holidays there at the Broadmoor? 
Yeah, well, we're we're even a little more unique than the other two gentlemen. Um, we're a private resort and a private club. So, in order to play golf or to come here, you must be a resort guest. So, during the let's say the Christmas season, people off the street can't just come into the golf shop and shop. They must be resort guests. And as we know, the occupancy drops quite a bit in the winter time. So, there's less traffic. And then really over half of our members go elsewhere uh, mid-October through mid-May. They go to Arizona or California or Florida or Texas. They go to warm weather. So our opportunity rate drops way, way down. So uh, our philosophy here is a little bit like Mark's come, come December. We need to have a pretty empty shop and keep it that way January, February, and half of March and then start ramping up again. But one thing we do try to do for, say, our members in December, we'll have special theme parties and then add uh, retail merchandise opportunities on top of it. Um, I walk around the golf shop with a bottle of red wine in each hand and pour wine in glasses, and um, then they can spin a wheel and get 20, 30, 40 percent off. So it, at least it does, you know, my philosophy too. And you know, once again, when I own the shop, I'd rather have it go out the door at 10% margin than just sitting there and making nothing, uh, hoping for someone to come in and pay full price. Um, but like the guy said too, um, you know, we're, we're jamming uh, May through, through November. So we need to have plenty of inventory to pick from, but once that December rolls around, we need to be somewhat empty. So we'll, we'll go from an average of about 300 and some thousand inventory down to around 115, 120. And that's a pretty big drop. Um, but anything we do has to be a themed event to want people to come out and shop and be a part of it. Um, one of my mentors growing up, um, he always said, you can't put percentages in the bank, Russ. And that what you just said about um, when young guys buy clothes and they're buying something at 50 or 60 or $75 now, I remember. Um, and then they're, they're just, they're, Hey, we're going to keystone it. They just first thing they do is they keystone it. I yeah. mean, and I always tell guys that's a starting point. That is yeah. what is what will the market bear? So if we're going to buy some really cool high end stuff, you know, we've dabbled in the cashmere, but I'm not going to get a full mark on that. But at least we can give the allure that we're carrying this high end product. So maybe we're we're not taking as full of a mark. Or if we buy inexpensive things like a Piquet Polo back in the day when we're buying things for fifteen or sixteen dollars, now we're getting. 39 or 49 for those and uh, just to, just to, to Russ's point at the end of the year I go that money does a lot more importance sitting in the bank at if we sell even at a 10% loss at the end of the year than that $50 score sitting on a rack hanging in the storeroom doing nothing agree no, I agree with everything. Um, I was going to say what I try to do also in, in December is I try to become full service. So we try to do gift wrapping. Um, even if it, even if you didn't buy your Christmas presents here at the club, if you want to bring your presents over here, me and my staff will wrap them up for you. Um, we, we turn into UPS shipping too. If you get your, you want your stuff sent to your family and kids in Kansas or wherever they live, you bring them to us. We'll box them up. We'll UPS. They don't have to go fight the traffic and the lines down at the uh, postal service. It makes it real simple they can just drop it off here and um, we do that kind of stuff and I, I agree 100% I mean I learned that most guys um, 
they'll buy a shirt at 40% off. You don't have to go much deeper in 40% off that most, most members will buy a shirt at 40%. Even if they're going to buy that shirt to wash their car, um, they'll buy it at 40% off. Uh, and ladies, it's like, ladies, there's two, two price points, two discount points. It's 50% off or 75% off. Those are, if you give them 20 off, they ain't going to buy it. If it's 50, they'll buy it. If it's 75, they'll, they'll, they'll buy it and not even wear it. And after that point, once it goes past 75, it's miles just take it out of inventory and donate it to your local charity. So that's, that's how I try to operate. So George, if I show up with a car full of gifts at the end of the year, would you ship them and wrap them for me? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. Uh-huh. Well, George, you brought up a really good point. Um, kind of when we were talking about the different kinds and challenges of, of facilities, um, of picking your vendors and picking good ones. I'm curious to see what the three of you think about how you pick your vendors, how you vet the different options, because in the last few years that I had the privilege of walking the PGA show after the executive directors conference and things, there's just so many new products that launch every single year. So many companies that have, you know, different things It used to be like Yeti was the golden standard of water bottles. Now you can get a stainless steel, fantastic water bottle from like 50 different companies. So how do each of you pick and choose those vendors when there's just so many options? Um, George, I'll keep it with you. Well, it, I'm different now. You know, I got a small shop. We're doing, you know, roughly $300,000 worth of sales. So um, right now, I mean, I just have the, the vendors that I know, the reps that I know that I trust. Um, and, and I'm going to be totally honest. Um, I'm kind of got to be where if you're going to, if you're willing to come over and see me, then I'm probably going to buy from you. And if, if you're, relying on me to come see you at the Denver Mart or the Denver show. Um, I'm probably not going to buy from you. I really, I just feel like that's, if you're going to make the effort to come see me, I will, uh, I will take care of, you know, and, and, and purchase something from you and take care of it. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a challenge again. Um, we made a conscious effort not to do any sporting brands. So meaning like we don't do any Nike Under Armour or Puma Adidas, I'm probably missing somebody there, but um, you know, we just said, hey, if you if you carry one, you got to carry them all. And we kind of said, hey, we're not into the sporting brand market. Uh, we're into more of a higher end market. We kind of set our brand up and who we're trying to be as a club. Um, so we don't we don't carry a lot of those sports brands, and I think that helps simplify it for me, so that uh, to, to make me a little bit different in what we're trying to be here at Ravenna. Ross, I'll kick that question to you. Um, how do you pick your vendors? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the the number one criteria always is quality. Um, and let's forget the the price of it. It's it's going to be quality. So, you know, I've been here like I said, twenty three years. Going back twenty three years ago, we really thought we had to sell a shirt under the forty dollar price point. And then we had to have five different price points. Where remember the Bobby Jones at one hundred twenty five dollars was your was your highest price point. Well, now instead of five different price points, we're down to more like three. And our average shirt, where it used to be the the retail price was around fifty dollars, now it's up to that ninety-five to one hundred ten dollar range. And and I would have thought, gosh, that's never going to happen. Nobody's going to spend that much money for a golf shirt, but they do because it's all quality and and plus it's logoed. Um, but at the same time, we do something a little bit different than George does because some of our clientele wants that sport where we do very well with with Under Armour. Um, we don't do Nike and all the others. We try to keep it with Under Armour, keep it a small uh, width. But um, 
the old price point, you know, you can't even get a shirt or you can't buy a shirt under $20 anymore, hardly. And um, there's one thing I learned from a pro work for back in my 20s. He said, if you can get six, you can get nine. So what he meant was instead of charging 76 for it, charge 79 because they'll spend three more dollars. Now, if you get to 80, now they may have second thoughts. So, um, and to Mark's point, we do uh, Keystone Plus on almost everything. And uh, then when you have that sale of 15, 20% off, a lot of times you're just getting back to Keystone, which is a great margin. But it's all about quality, Holly. I, that's my That's my answer. That's a great answer. I think definitely quality. Mark, what are your thoughts? You know, both of the gentlemen said exactly um, what we look at. For me, it's trust. Um, it's it's relationship driven, but it's relationship driven with the vendor, the brand, um, and then also the sales representative. So I, if I'm going to um, make an investment into your company, into your brand, I have to know that the logo is going to look great. The color coordination is going to do great. I don't even let people pick out my colors. Um, I, I They laugh at me when I start going, hey, I want, want this and this. And I'm like, I just have seen so many products come in with green on green because they color coordinated it kind of sideways. So I have to trust that I'm going to give you an order, Ollie. It's going to show up when I when we say, how we say, um, and it needs to, to, to be of the quality, as Russ is saying, it, it just needs to be perfect. Um, and I know that if something goes south, I shouldn't feel bad by calling you to say, hey, we've had some, we had a poor shipment, we all make mistakes but you're going to stand behind it. So I think it, um, you know, we have some amazing sales reps in our, in our, in our section, probably national award winners in their own right. Um, and you like to deal with the professionals that, um, product, I just, I'm not going to name names, but I just had, um, $4,000 of unlogoed product that just showed up this weekend and I needed that to, to open. So now I've got to either go get them local embroidered, I got to send them back and get them embroidered. It's just a challenge that I wasn't planning for because now, you know, that that area is is empty. Um, so now I'm scrambling to figure out what what I'm going to do. But I think trust um, in the relationship with the vendor and the and the sales rep is is key. Definitely, and I, having those contacts that you can go to and know that it's going to get done, get done right and on time is, is certainly a valuable business asset as well as just you know, easing your mind with all the things that PJ professionals have to manage on a daily basis. Um, a couple of you talked about the size of your golf shops. Um, I've again, had the opportunity to, to be at each one of your golf shops for different reasons. And um, the size variance is is different between, you know, the Broadmoor versus Mark. I haven't actually been in the new building yet, but uh, was in the, the former one in the golf shop or in the uh, main clubhouse. And George seeing your shop in Castle Pines, as well as being um, in your, your structure there at Ravenna and, um, you know, having the opportunity for a couple of you to build new, new spaces. How do you merchandise the space that you have and how would you, tailor your merchandising to the space that's available. Um, Russ, we'll start with you. That's a great question. We're, we're about 2,300 square feet in our shop. And two years ago, we actually moved the counter more toward the center of the shop. So when every guest walks in the door, we can greet them by eye contact and verbally right away before our backs were kind of turned to them. And it was, it was not a very good situation. Um, 
we'll do about a 1.3 million a year in retail sales. So having that much volume really allows us to fill up a shop the size we have. And I don't say that to brag that 1.3 million, I say that because if we did 150,000 and had that many square feet, that's not going to look right. It's not going to work very well. Um, so having that much room, we can we can really diversify. Um, as Mark mentioned early, anything that really sells, you know, we really try to do things that sell the state of Colorado, um, um, not just soft goods and obviously not just golf clubs. So anything that sells the state, because a lot of people want to take back a souvenir from Colorado. We have a big section for kids only. Um, that's normally a, a tough, tough sale. But here, there's so many grandparents that want to take a logo golf shirt back to their three-year-old uh, grandson. I mean, it's amazing how well that does. So I think it's just, once again, we're fortunate because the volume we do and the number, we do 35,000 rounds, which is not a lot. But um, there's a lot of shoppers from the hotel that come in that aren't playing golf. So we do have enough volume to, to main that, maintain that that amount of square footage and and constantly moving around displays and merchandising and trying to have themes and you know we've really done a lot more with signage we we really showcase if you have Peter Millar in one corner we have a nice gold sign that says Peter Millar and then Footjoy and then whatever company it may be so um, people and, and I know y'all have noticed this too people seek out Peter Millar for example so if you have a sign hanging up where it, where it draws their eye to it, they're most likely going to buy a shirt or two. So um, we're fortunate. I mean, just everybody says, well, 2,300 square feet is a big space, and it is. But when you have three or four or five people working in the shop at once and going around greeting customers and helping them, it, it's not that big. It's not too big. Definitely. I, I, having been there six years ago, uh, was my first experience with the Broadmoor. You walk into 2,300 square feet and it doesn't feel like 2,300 square feet. You've got it merchandised well enough that it, it still feels kind of, from my opinion anyway, kind of more of a boutique shop, which I think was a really neat atmosphere. It does, thanks. Um, and, and that's kind of how we set it up where it is boutique. Um, instead of having 40 shirts crammed on a rack, we may have 12 to 15 and then have a lot of them back stocked where we can go get the right size if it's not out. Because um, you don't want to look like a Walmart, you know, where they just cram as much as they can. You want it to be, we like an inch or two between each shirt and on hangers, obviously, and where they can see them and feel them and touch them. And it is a boutique style. That's definitely correct. Um, George, what do you think on size of your shop and thoughts there? Well, you know, I'm excited to get into a new shop. It's going to be twice as big. It's just trying to make sure you use every inch of space that you have available to to show some products off. A couple of years ago, um, for example, our shoe sales were real bad. And so we just built a bunch of shelves real high and not real high, but eye level to display shoes. It was all of a sudden our shoes, uh, the sales doubled in one year. It's just because we we kind of had a vision of, hey, we need to get how, how are we going to do this? And it really worked well. And uh, I think, you know, having uh, mannequins and uh, nice, uh, nice hangers and, and make sure that, you know, when you bring stuff in that you steam the shirt so they're not wrinkled and all that, all those little detail things uh, display better and it catches the eye of the customer. And I think that's so important, especially in a small shop because, you know, it, 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 something looks out of place if it doesn't look right. So that's very important in our, our area. And 
George, with your new building, did you get to have an opinion or help design the new space? Yeah, we were working with uh, Mike Severson of ProCraft, who's done, you know, got, I don't know how many hundreds of golf shops he's done. So um, I relied mostly on Mike's expertise and the layout of the building um, with all our natural lighting. We have a ton of natural lighting in there and we're very lucky. We're going to have really high uh, vaulted ceilings that are going to be 20 feet vaults. Um, so the shop's going to look bigger than 800 square feet. It's going to look twice the size and uh, you know, working with Mike and saying, okay, let's, can we throw some bags up here or what can we, how can we display up here or how can we do some things here? So uh, it all works out really well. So it's, it's, it's been a fun project um, it, it doing that, you know, for example, you know, we, when the first design, we had a computer station for members to post their scores. Well, our last thing we said, Hey, we're, that's out. We're gone. We don't need to do that anymore. Everybody's doing it mobily, you know? And, you know, one of the things I was thinking is do we even really need a counter in there? Because pretty soon everybody's going to have like a little pad and, um, you know, a little kiosk and, you know, would that be an opportunity to better serve your members? Cause I always hate that barrier between the staff and the, and the members as they walk in the shop. So, um, but it's been interesting, you know, even with uh, clubs, you know, do we need less spots for clubs? I remember when I worked at Cherry Hills, you had, you know, four or five sets of irons on the rack and you'd had every kind of wood and hybrid and putters and wedges. And, and now it seems like with uh, custom fitting and different things that uh, we're going to have a lot less space dedicated for woods and irons and, and rely more on custom fitting for that kind of stuff. Um, but we'll have spots for putters and, uh, and, and some wedges, but it's uh it's kind of changed as far as all that goes, for my opinion. Interesting take on the space. I, I like the vertical. Um, I learned that from Ron Dunham when I worked at Teton Pines in Wyoming. He always had a row of hooks that were 10 feet in the air that he displayed golf bags. They were kind of a pain to get to if somebody wanted to see five of them, but they caught the eye every time and he sold a ton of them. So that was really cool. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have a library we're gonna have a library ladder to our bags, so it's gonna be kind of cool to have a you know library ladder that goes around on a on a on a track. So it'd be kind of cool. That is really cool. That's a neat design. Um, Mark, what do you think? Size of the shop, space design, um, and did you have the opportunity to design the new one as well? Um, we went. I had. Uh, you know, the cool part is good and bad. So depending on your perspective, but uh, myself and our staff, um, Cy Tweet, Jeff Stevens. This was. This is a huge. And they're the parts of the reasons that we've done really well in merchandising. Um, is we all got to. We took more photos of other people's accomplishments and brought them back and said, "How do we do this?" Like two things we've done. Um, I, I, I guess my input is have fun make it fun. In the old days, you know, we used to walk, go to the mall. I used to go to the Gap and like just look at this visual merchandising, you know. And if you look at their stores, their stores are smaller than most of our golf shops. And they, you know, they're very visually creative. I guess that's where in my merchandising, it's, it's, that's the key component for me. Cause if it's attractive, I called it the shiny lure. Um, I'm going to follow and walk over there and check it out. And the more time I'm in there to touch and feel, um, I probably more in, inclined to buy one or two or multiples. Um, but we made a, you know, we went up to the new TPC. They just built a building. You know, we went to the Broadmoor. We snuck in on Russ's place. We, you know, I think Russ is one of the best merchandisers in our section. You know, guys had more USGA events at his property. He's got more eyes. And what they do down there is they want, you know, 
Same thing with um, Mr. Cole and George and John and the team at Cherry Hills. And we've got some amazing operators in our section that all you have to do is pick up the phone, give them a call. And I, like George, I said, you know, you, before you're done, you should come down and see what we did well and what we did poorly. But we did a, built a huge shoe wall, you know, and everybody has shoe walls, but we did it ourselves. It's got barn wood on the outside. We measured boxes. You open it up. You know, we have um, standards or uh, not slat wall. I'm not a big believer in slat wall, but for vertical standards in there. Um, and then we had our own paw custom shelves made on the outside. So we went from having a storeroom of holding like 40, maybe 50 pairs of shoes in stock. And we just had to be really good merchandisers and reorders. Now I can, now I've got, I think I have seven brands of shoes outside. You open the door, inventory's there, no one's leaving the, the sale. We got some high back chairs, just to the basics of make it a seating area, make it cool. The other one is we took our hat rack and we moved it from the old building and everybody knows how much margins um, you make in hats. They're more, they're so expensive these days, but um, it's the, the pricing is very elastic, I, I feel. There's so many great companies, like I have no problem plugging Puka, got a great relationship with these guys. I come up with these ideas and these guys are, they, they come back and they trounce me. But we took our old hat rack and doubled it. So now we used to have hats, we'd fill it up and then our hat rack is enormous. We put lights in it, LEDs back to the shiny light stuff. So we went from 900 to 1800 square feet. And I just think you have to kind of segment your shop off and um, have fun with it. You know, have some mirrors. You know, I was at, not I'm not, not bashful, I was at Hobby Lobby yesterday, um, walking through there and they've got more bear signs and white crates that are, you know, have the farmhouse look. And I'm buying just props. So when people walk in, they're looking Looking at it and and feeling feeling unique, you know. It's like you know what I don't I don't see. This is not like my club that I play at regularly. So I just challenge people to the more fun you can make it, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, I lived in a 900 square foot. Our our the year our team won um, has been recognized as merch, merchandisers of the year. We we were under a 900 square foot. And you want to talk about clutter, George? You know when you have you you know when stuff came in, it had to go on the floor because there was no storeroom. So it was like full, full, full. Um, now we can create flow. We can create a buying environment. You know, we can create um, eye levels high and right where everybody's looking and using those opportunities to catch people's eyes. I think that's, I, to me, that's the most important part of, of figuring out if keeping people in your shop is if you can sustain their attention for longer than 20 seconds, they're gonna have a tendency to stay around and chat and look, touch and feel. Certainly. I think the comfortable environment creates a little bit better cash flow. And if you're comfortable, you're going to buy something. So that's great points. Well, gentlemen, I think you've really brought some great points to the table for merchandising for anybody from any kind of facility that wants to learn about how national award winners do it, how their teams do it, um, and things that they can take away for their own facility. So with that, I'd kind of like to just give each one of you the opportunity to give us your takeaway for merchandising as a whole. And uh, we'll start with Russ. Well, thanks, Holly. And it was great just listening to uh, George and Mark. Every time you talk to peers like this, you you end up learning things. And I, I actually took notes on a few things. Um, and what stands out, too, at our three different facilities, we're totally different. We we have somewhat different clientele. We have different challenges. Um you know, George is very dependent on on homeowners in the neighborhood and the community, and 
then Mark has some members, but also has the public to depend on. And then we're a private resort. So we're depending on people flying in from all over the world, basically. Um, but I think, you know, a little bit of advice, not to us three, but to people that maybe are coming up in the business is just keep on learning from people who've had a lot of experience. Um, you know, none of the three of us have invented anything we've done. We've learned it from someone else. Um, I spoke to Clayton Cole last night at home at seven o'clock about something. And, um, as a peer and a great friend, I had a question and, and learned something from him. So, um, Bill Strasbaugh, who's passed away, but he said, those who teach shall, shall never cease to learn. And I'll never forget that. So, um, let's just keep learning, keep getting better and, and realizing that things change and you have challenges, but let's make it fun and, and help others live the experience we have as well. I love that quote. Um, Mark, we'll go with you. Closing remarks? Just what Russ kind of alluded to is, you know, you need to know your business. You need to know who you are and what your property is about. First and foremost, you can't be, you know, Ravenna. Um, if you don't know um, what clientele you're coming, you 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 have to be make it your own. Learn what your people are looking for. Are they looking for fashion? Are they looking for athletic? Um, but I think what what Rust has said is you need to hang around with smarter people than you. Mm-hmm. You need to expand your your pond, and there's a lot of people, and I I. And, you know, one of the I, I, I was going to talk about it earlier, but merchandising, I think, is twofold buying and merchandising. They're two dynamic pieces. Um, buying is really, really, really hard. Merchandising, I think, is make is getting it out. But buying is as a critical eye, a lot of a lot of quality checks go into it. And Russ's buyer, Tina, um, I hung out with her as much as I possibly could when she would send me her calendar when we go to the merchandise show so if I could see anybody that was buying that knew what they're going I was I was hanging out I was photobombing everybody and listening and watching and going why are they doing this and just trying to expand my horizon because I wasn't the best high-end ladies buyer but I wanted to watch really good people who did it so Hang out with people that are smarter than you, that have done it for a long time, and then you can learn what they do well and what they do poorly. But um, reach out, because I don't think many people in our section are going to turn you down. Great advice. And I was hoping one of you would kick that off with, um, these are three experts and and chosen for a lot of different reasons. But I think if anybody wanted to reach out to each of you or any of you, I would think they would find a wealth of knowledge and willingness to help. George, what are your thoughts? Well, first, I'd thank uh, Mark and Russ for today and you, Holly, for uh, having us. Um, I'm going to say that 99% of what I do, I stole from somebody else. Um, I think I've had 1% of uh, good ideas and something that I've done. Uh, you try to learn from other people and what they do and what's successful. And uh, and it's important. I think the most important thing, at least for private clubs, you got to get to know your customer, get out behind the counter, talk to them. When they come in, you talk to them about their golf game or you talk to them about the PGA Tour or something like that. So once you get to know people, um, they, they just make them feel comfortable and they want to, they want to, they want to, you know, support the club. And I think that's, they want to support the, place they're playing as much as they can and 
more you get to know those people, they will support you or they will support the organization. Um, your assistant pros, it doesn't matter with lessons or um, what it is or buying from the shop. And you want to be that place where they, they come in and they want to they want to take care of you first, as opposed to going down to PGA Superstore or going over to, uh, you know, Lenny's Golf Shop and buying over there. So I think that's the most important thing is um, making your making your people feel really comfortable and, and an enjoyable atmosphere at your club and um, just having fun. And I think sometimes we all get caught up in the rat race of this, that, and the other. And I think sometimes the biggest thing you got is just step back and, and relax a little bit and, uh, and enjoy the, the person that's in front of you that day. I'm the worst at that sometimes. I, I'm a very task-oriented person. And a lot of times I just got to slow myself down and say, okay, you know, you know, Joe members in here and he wants to talk to me. And if it takes him 30 minutes to talk to me about, you know, how he's got the slices, I just, that's 30 minutes of my time I got to give to him. So anyway, that's my two cents. Fantastic thoughts and spoken from a too passionate professional from each of you. So I, I appreciate that. Um, George Carhoff, Mark Bankston, Russ Miller, thank you all for being part of this episode of the Elevation Podcast focused on merchandising. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Thanks Holly. Holly. Thanks, guys.